uh, we're going to go ahead and get started because we have a lot of people joining here us talk oh, about good. dancing as fun as AI <laughs> is. But um, let's, let's get this rolling here. Um, so first off, as usual, welcome everybody to our end of year wrap up live stream. I'm so excited. I can't believe it's the end of the year already. I'm already starting to plan 2024 topics. So if there's anything you want to know about in 2024 on the live stream, put that in the comments um, and I'll see if I can work that into our schedule. First things first, I'm going to go round robin, have everybody introduce ourselves. Um, Alessandra, you're first on my side over here. So I'll have you go, then Steve, then John and Emily. All right, great. Thanks, yes. So my name is Alessandra. I am the head of data at Prospector. I have about uh, 12 years of experience working for the mining industry, mostly in the financial and economic side, so, side of the industry. Uh, Steve DeJong at Verify. I'm the only non-prospector person here. Um, I was in, I, mean, I guess I've been in the mining sector for about 15 years now, the first 10 or so on the company corporate side and now running Verify, a technology company that services the sector. Thanks for having me. Right, does that, does that mean I'm next? Uh, so John Godby, one of our CTO, uh, well, I'm in, in one of our co-founders, um, <clears throat> and been about three or four years of mining, but in technology, it's been over 15 years. Uh, my background's in economics and applications of AI. So. Yeah. And I'm Emily, the other founder of Prospector and our CEO, geologist by background, and good idea, very extraordinaire. Um, like to dump all sorts of fun things on folks. So yeah, look forward to the chat today. Awesome, thank you. Uh, Steve, by non-prospector, you mean very special guest is, uh, is the introduction yes. there. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So um, quick little plug here. I just wanted to go over, I'm super jealous of the Spotify wrapped. So I created mm -hmm. a 2023 prospector mining data wrapped for us to go over before we really dig in. Um, and I'm super excited about it. So, uh, so for this year, most of you know, we have a weekly newsletter that goes out. These were our top headlines or most clicked headlines in the Nugget newsletter. Um, graphite, issues facing mining. Um, and everybody was super excited about Thacker Pass. So that's really exciting. Um, of course, On the Rocks is our podcast, and I was super excited. We were streamed in 53 countries, uh, which is amazing to me. We were the top 10 podcasts for almost 300 fans. Five more people through the end of the year. If you can get those listing numbers up, that'll make me very happy. Um, and a special thank you, of course, to all of our guests, including our special guest today, Steve. Um, thank you for joining us on The Rocks in 2023. And then finally, some data reports by the Prospector team. Uh, this year, we explored lithium, uranium, and Columbia. Uh, kind of threw Columbia in there, and it's been one of my personal favorite reports so far. Teamed up with Global Scout on that one. Boom. Quick Prospector wrapped. So today, um, as you probably have heard through the grapevine or in the nugget, or you might have guessed, we are talking about mining industry financing. And this has to be one of the major trends in 2023 that I've seen so far. I don't know about all you guys, but it's been in conferences. It's been in the news. It's been all over social media. Uh, Steve and Emily were both on a panel earlier this year uh, discussing this. And so it's just everywhere. And I thought it would be cool um, to really dig into it um, with some experts. First off, I wanted to throw it to John and Alessandra because 
with the 2023 industry data, we've seen a huge interest like in mining projects, movements, especially in the critical minerals space and lithium. What regions and minerals really seem to be making the moves um, in 2023? Okay, I'll go first. So the general trend in projects, developments, expansions, and even acquisitions have been critical have been linked to critical materials. We have the M&A transaction uh, between uh, Newmont and Newcrest that also serves not only to consolidate them as a top uh, gold producer, but also gives them a very uh, solid position in silver and cork, which is one of the, the critical the critical material for this energy, uh, energy transition. And uh, the same for BHP with uh, acquiring us minerals by the end of last year. That means that they have an, um, the same trend into acquiring minerals that are critical for the energy energy transition. That means, in their case of BHP, will be acquiring copper and nickel projects. The most, I think, that the top uh, countries that make uh, some M&A, big M&A transaction have been the case of uh, Canada, Australia, um, some movements in, in Latin America, but mostly from, as I say, Australia and, and Canada and regions that have developed in, or makes most of that transaction related to critical materials. So the only thing I would add is I think that lithium is, is kind of been a big thing. Like you're seeing just the number of technical reports for lithium projects is to me astounding. And I think that, you know, it, it uh, all the, um, the legal issues around Thacker Pass would be interesting to see if it kind of can get past the bar and get going. I think it, you know, this desire to find um, sort of more domestic supply of lithium is a big thing in the U.S., right? And I think you're you're seeing that reflected, maybe not just in the U.S., but North America in general. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the new year. I mean, I don't think the lithium price is coming down. I think it's only going to go up. And it's clear that, you know, we need a lot more <laughs> um, to go over what's going to happen. And I think especially with some of the legislation coming out, um, you know, the way that EV companies are going to get the tax credits for when they sell their vehicles, they're going to have to have some lithium that's domestically produced. And I don't think you get around it. And that, that goes for cobalt and the other metals as well. And it'll be, you know, I think this is reflective of the desire to find more mines in North America. It's, it'll be interesting to see what the looks like. Uh, so on the more investment side of things, right? One thing I hear a lot and we see a lot in the headlines is that there is this increased interest in mine materials, whether it be for these EVs or whether it be for gold or um, even industrial minerals, right, um, for infrastructure. But there's still such a ton of capital coming into the space. So Steve and Emily, again, I know you both have chatted about this a ton, um, but I was wondering what kind of input you have on this. How can we decrease that uh, funding gap, et cetera? I'm not sure which one you want to go first. I should let our esteemed guests go first. Steve? I, I, I kind of think you have to almost break them into three different categories. I think we have precious metals. We have critical minerals that, that for the called the EV transition or the energy transition. And those are things that go into batteries and uh, cars and things like copper and lithium and so on. And then you have your, your sort of traditional more base metals and your iron ores and, and things like that. Um, I was, I think it was about a week ago, gold hit an all-time high and then silver was sort of coming alongside. I was one of those people that after seven years of getting beat up and being involved in, in the sector, I was very, very excited that this is the end and that kind of, it was up $50 on Sunday night. And then by the next day, I'd taken a hundred dollar turn and was down $40. Um, 
So I, I think for, for, if we look at those three categories, I personally think we're really close to seeing a, a big run in the precious metals. And I'm not one of those, I'm not sort of the, the talking head of the sector that just talks about gold's always going to go up. Um, and eventually it will, it's, it just feels like we're at that point. And if that happens, I think you'll see literally dozens of precious metal financings take place in, in a one or two week period. Um, there's, you, you've, have all of these companies sitting more on the, I would say on the exploration development side, less on the producer side. And a lot of producers have really cleaned up their balance sheets on the, on the earlier stage ones that are just waiting for that window to open so they can fund themselves. I think that's, so on that side, I think it's very much a, a commodity price driven exercise. If the, if the commodity price of the precious metals takes off, I do think you're going to see that funding gap, um, vacuum, whatever you want to call it, close essentially overnight. And, I'd much rather be where we are now, where we're sort of $30, $40 away from the all-time high versus kind of five, $600 away from the all-time high. It feels like a, a nice, we're in a nice position. I'm saying there's a chance. <laughs> um, on, on, on the, I, I don't know enough to be totally honest on sort of the, the traditional base metals, um, uh, iron, like the, the bigger ones, but speaking to the energy transition metals or critical minerals and, and things like that, it, it feels very much like we have this environment that I don't think the industry has ever had before, where you have general interest in, in what we're doing, because we finally have that connection that, Hey, I like my electric car. Or I like my Tesla. And where does the metal come from, from this? Traditionally, that was always sort of it's oil and gas that, that drives these things. So I think that we have that sort of, I don't know if groundswell is the right word, but we have that general, um, I would not, not, not. Uh, not the public's approval, but, but I guess interest or understanding or appreciation for that connection between what we do as a, as a sector and sort of the day-to-day -day uses of that. What we haven't really seen is just that transition into actual investment. And I think you're seeing a lot of now let's government funding, let's build a battery plant or let's help push these projects forward. But day-to-day -day, you're not seeing copper, lithium, I guess we did see for a while and there's still some interest there. I don't know what that's going to take. I think the commodity price is really going to help, like if the copper price goes or, or anything else. But I think it's just a continuing sort of educational process to, to remove those barriers where you have a lot of investors that are traditionally just don't invest in mining. And I think that, that, that work to be done to educate them on the value of mining stocks and mining investments and, and kind of um, creating the supply for the next group of mines that are going to fuel the energy transition. I think a lot of that work's being done. And I think over the next year to five years, you're just going to see continued interest, little like chipping away at it more. So my view on the two things is, is precious metals. I think we're days, weeks away from like a really exciting market in that space. And on the other side, I think you're just going to continue to see more and more interest uh, come into the energy transition metals over time. I would say, I think, we have seen a non-traditional source of capital come into the market in a big way in the last year. It's just not the one that everybody wanted or expected. And that is like government money has entered the chat, right? Like there is a lot of talk about different governments and just to focus on the U.S. government, right? There's been U.S. funding allocated to projects, different ways, different agencies, other governments are talking about it last year. I mean, Saudi Arabia made a huge announcement after FMF this year in January with Madden and their sovereign wealth fund that they were going to start inter investing internationally, right? You're starting to see 
like governments get involved in investing directly in mining companies, mining projects for strategic reasons, they just may not be doing it in the way that the industry wishes they would do it. It might be different projects than folks in the industry would expect to be financed. It might be have different strings attached, certainly from like a U.S. government perspective, right, than, than a normal kind of mining investment group would. But I think it's and it's also creating confusion around like there's all this talk of critical minerals, certainly in the U.S. and Canada, like domestic um, sources of critical minerals. The government's saying they're going to do all this stuff, and yet they're you know, denying permits for other mines that are really far along, like what's going on? Where is the money going to go? How is this money going to operate? So I think that's been something else that has created a bit of a frenzy around how do we market our company in order to be able to tap into government money? Like, how can we take our gold project and turn it into a critical minerals project? Right. I would be, you know, Steve, I don't know if it verify if you guys are seeing this, like all of a sudden companies are starting to highlight you know, byproducts maybe before weren't something that anybody really cared about. Um, but I kind of sense that going on as well as in particular on the gold side. I think the groups that are buying up these massive amounts of gold, like central banks internationally, are not the same people or groups that buy gold mining company stocks. Right. So you've got this weird dichotomy where central banks are buying up massive amounts of gold bars and bullion and stuff, but it's not like they're going to buy stock in juniors. Right. So the, I think that's part of the other piece that's certainly confusing to me, at least. And so what, what the heck's going on with all the money? Yeah. And, and then you also have the backdrop of like, if I can make 6% of my GIC and I'm kind of worried about the economy in general, do I really want to take a punt on a, on a junior gold company and, and the volatility that comes with it. And I think that's, we saw it yesterday where um, just the guidance that was given on upcoming rate changes and potentially dropping rates and gold's up 50 bucks and in yeah. sort of a matter of minutes. Um, yeah. It's, it's sort of, I don't know. I, one, one thing we did see a lot of, and I think it's just junior companies and, and like these are entrepreneurs that, that will do whatever they need to, to survive. And I mean that in, in a good way, um, but you did see a bit of kind of the gold company now has a lithium asset and and so on. Um, and I think that's you're naturally going to see that and you'll see the news flow from these companies um, work its way back to being kind of precious metals focused if that's the environment we're in. And I actually I, I'm one of those people. I don't think that's naturally a, I don't think that's a bad thing. Like your job is running one of these companies is to kind of achieve the highest valuation possible, reduce the cost of capital and push a project forward. And sometimes that means kind of allocating financing capital, attention, resources to um, different elements within your project. It's, it, I do find it fascinating that all of these, a lot of these gold companies actually had lithium on their projects the, the entire time. Like a lot of this isn't, I picked up a new lithium project. It's like, we right. forgot to look, we forgot to look, or we didn't, in the, in the past, it was never worth it for us, for us to look over here, which is, yeah, one of those interesting things that's come out of this lithium uh market that we we found ourselves in oh, we kind of briefly glazed over this but i'd like to dig a little bit more and we have lots of comments coming in so please keep those up um any questions we'll kind of save towards the end here but with more eyes on the mining industry we talked a little bit emily used mentioned like government financing and stuff what ways can we 
attract kind of more of this capital. Alex mentioned transparency. Uh, Peggy mentioned um, desire for green um, and clean. What, you know, embracing technology. And Steve, I know you've talked a little bit about AI and changing like press releases the other day. What kind of ways can we bring in and attract these different groups um, to, to the mining industry? Deeper dig here. Gosh, <laughs> we can go around table on this. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll kick it off. I think when I'm talking to folks, they're, they typically start by looking at a commodity, right? They typically have a commodity that they're interested in if they're looking at mining investing for the first time. Um, and there will be some kind of product or, you know, industry that has kind of gotten them to take a look at that, right? I mean, I, I find that to be pretty often like, like, oh, I never really understood how important mining was until I started looking at electric vehicles or, you know, I never understood how important copper was until I started working with this infrastructure company. So I think like commodities attract people's interest first um, because it's something that they can relate to. And then they typically will start to look uh, at either at a company level, if they're like a retail investor or at a country level, if they're looking to invest in a single asset. And I think that's a big differentiator that I see in terms of how people start to research or look at mining, they either have this idea of like, I want to own part of a mine, <laughs> which is a really fun thing to do and, and be part of, right? Or they're looking at the corporate level. And I think the reason I say that's important for folks to understand is in how you tell your story. And I know this is where Prospector and Verify are super aligned. Like, I think we in the industry have to tell stories about what we're doing and how it connects with people from an end user perspective and also the story of the business, right? How is the company you want this person to invest in going to eventually make money? And I think especially in the ex junior or as we're trying to call them now, explorers, right? Not be so dismissive, but the, you know, in that space, like you've gotta be able to tell folks up front, look, I am never going to build this mine. <laughs> Here is the exit strategy. If you come in as an investor, here's what that looks like for the money you put in. And I think that's something that we don't oftentimes do well within the mining industry is tell that story of what your investment is going to deliver and how you're going to make your money back. Steve, you want to you take a run at that one? Yeah, um, I think I'll, I'll focus on one of Emily's last points on, the, on just the making money side. Like, the reality is people invest because they want to make money. And it's not because we're all greedy, capitalistic, um, evil people. It's that's why you make an investment in something. And I think like if I'm going to invest in a stock for me personally, um, I approach it very much from like, will this stock price go up? And mm -hmm. then, then you have your filters of whether it's commodities or kind of ESG record or team or other things and whether or not it sort of passes the test on, on, those other elements. Um, I think as, as a whole, you're going to see a bit of, um, it's almost like a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think, again, not to go back to precious metals, but we started to see it last week where there's a lot of companies that were up 30, 40% because for, for two years, the, the, the narrative has been very much, if I can make this much in a GIC and all of these things that, that in the sector tend to just go down, and that's sort of been this environment in why would you why would you take the risk and then mm -hmm. overnight it, it seems like and again this is precious metals in a, a a small sample size but overnight these like things are really starting to move 
there's an element of um, it's whether it's FOMO or greed or just the fact that you want to make investments that are worth more after you make them. Um, as soon as that starts to occur, that drip rate, that starts to attract capital. And that in itself, if there's more buyers than sellers, drives share prices up. And all of a sudden you have yourself in a market where that people are, are kind of crawling over themselves to get into. So I actually I actually think it's it's going to ultimately be super simple in that what do we do? What do we need to do to attract capital Um to the sector, what's going to change? It's the second people start making kind of making money in it, you and you're looking at, say, your portfolio, because if you look at, say, the last five years and it's, you have your mining, your tech, your bonds, whatever it is, mining is an underperformer, even though a lot of other sectors haven't done as well, too. The second mining is kind of an outperformer of those. What you're going to do is take other capital from other sectors and shift it on over. And the beautiful part of mining is it's actually such a small sector. You get some of these billion, hundred billion, trillion dollar pension funds, and they decide to go from a quarter of a percent to half a percent allocation into its precious metals or critical minerals. And you've just seen sort of 25, 50, 500 million dollars come into the sector overnight. And that's the size of some of like what we consider now the big resource funds within the space. So it's, yeah, in, in a lot of ways, I think it is ultimately people need to, I think the industry is, is doing a better job of showing the, the connections to what we do as a sector and why the world needs that. But I think that connection is ultimately just ticking a box and it's probably lower on the list than if I put money into this, is it going to be worth more or not? And as soon as that starts to occur, I do think you're just going to see um, money flood into the space. Um, there's a lot of people, whether it's your own capital or you're managing a pension fund or a fund, your entire job is to increase the value of the portfolio you're managing. And if mining can put its hand up and say, hey, that's going to be us for the next three years, that 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 capital will flood in. Awesome. I love the simplicity of that. Just got to make people money. <laughs> um, so speaking of that, that leads me directly into Alessandra with your financial background. Um, I really enjoy learning from you. Even if we bring more capital into the space, mining costs for these projects are still overall rising, right? Um, so from an economics perspective, what kind of things affect project costs and investment and how has this changed over the past few years? All right, so we talk about uh, capital. Bringing capital is expensive, especially nowadays uh, that interest rate have been going up and some companies finance those projects with debt. That means that it is costly to get to get uh, projects. Also, most of the investors in the last probably three or four years have been valuing ESG. But however, ESG, with all the benefit that it brings in the shorter term, is something expensive that needs uh, to the company to allocate some capital to invest on practices that, that comply with their ESG, ESG policies. In very, very brief, there have been some, some even standards and things that we hear about, about that topic. In terms of costs, uh, we have seen really big companies making adjustments in costs, optimization of processes and everything. Uh, we have heard a lot about uh, BHP or Anglo-American companies of that magnitude that have been ex um, focusing more than ever in costs. What we have seen in general terms in the in the industry, we have seen a rise on the on the prices of labor, energy, material that's linked to the infl inflationary inflationary sorry <laughs> inflationary pressure. Uh, 
so that brings all the prices high. However, if we evaluate, for example, in the energy, in the, the cost of energy, although most of the mining companies are walking towards the, the path of uh, decarbonization, the, the mining industry still depends on fossil fuels. So seeing, for example, the war in Ukraine, what happened in the Middle Eastern is increasing the, the cost of the cost of, of energy for the mining companies. Remember that uh, probably more, more than 80% of the of the energy provided from the, uh, pro, that uses the energy, the mining industry come from, from, that, from that, those sources. Then in terms of the cost of labor, it has increased first because of inflation and second, because there have been a shortage of um, people of skilled workers in the mining industry. That means that not only you have to hire the, the range of weights to the, to, the, to the professionals in the mining industry, but also in order to maintain or attract the most valuable uh, talent to your payroll, you need to pay more compensation and more benefits. That means that it is a cost, also a cost that needs to to incur a mining company. And another thing is that with the increase of, of the prices of the commodities, something that in general, the most of the commodities have been increases in the latest uh, month. Uh, some jurisdictions, some countries are increasing the mining, the mining royalties. Unfortunately, governments are really good in increasing the cost to mining companies, but not decreasing when the prices go low. So they want they, the companies need to be prepared to um, to assume that the cost may may go may continue to go higher. And all the expectations about inflation are that either go either or either is going to maintain at the same level or it is going to continue increasing. So we are not expecting to get lower in the in the medium term, and that that will definitely continue affecting affecting the cost to the, to the industry. Awesome. Thank you for all this great insight. With all of these rising costs, but also this rising um, interest in the industry and the supply chain gap, et cetera, that we've been talking about, I'm hearing more and more, and I know Emily has a bunch of thoughts on this, um, about changing the way that the mining industry is financed. And we even heard this on one of our recent episodes of On the Rocks. Um, people could wave a magic wand and change anything that they want, and it's changing the way that the mining industry is financed. Um, so I know nobody has like any solid solutions on this, but Emily, I'd like to start with you, and then Steve, John, Alessandra, um, kind of talk about what this means and maybe some ideas. I think, I mean, if we look at what needs to be changed, I think everyone would agree the industry has not been a stellar steward of capital in terms of being efficient with taking in capital and delivering discoveries, right? So if we can make the industry more efficient at discovery um, and reduce the risk at the early stage, that will, I think, you know, deliver bigger returns, of course, for investors and encourage more money to come in. But I think that's where I kind of see we've got to shift this like big fish eating small fish model that we have where all of our wonderful, crazy geologists just go out and wander around and kind of look for cool rocks and then try to scrape up a little bit of money to go get more info. Like, I think, John, you've got the stat or maybe Alessandra does like, the amount that the majors are spending on exploration is tiny, 
right? And that's because the juniors slash explorers in the mid tiers are taking on all of the exploration risk, which is also like the hardest <laughs> place to get people to, you know, to buy stock, right? I mean, so it's it's like we've put all the risk in the area where it's also the hardest to actually make a bunch of money um, or, or even get capital in order to do it properly. So I would love to see more programs and not, I mean, every, I think we've talked a lot about BHP's Explore program. Um, we've had them on the podcast and stuff, but these models where the majors start to find new ways to get capital down into promising juniors and explorers, right, to help reduce some of that risk, help increase the likelihood of discovery. I mean, I think that's part of what needs to change. And I think then non-traditional capital can come in alongside that. They're just none of them want to be the lead if they've never invested in early stage exploration projects before, right? Like, sure, they'd tag along with a major and be like, well, I guess they've done all the technical due diligence. This must be kind of de-risked. I'll go in with them, right? I think models like that would be incredibly powerful. Yeah, I, I agree with what, what Emily's saying. I think that one of the other elements that majors add to it, um, like every every junior out there, especially in a time like this, wants wants uh a big company to take a 10% stake in it. It's money. It's mm -hmm. a, it comes in equity, usually comes at a premium. Um, it's not the same as a JV or, or anything else. So you have a little more flexibility in what you spend it on. Um, but one of the biggest things that comes with it is it just validates everything because every investor and, and to Emily's point about generalists, they don't really know, like they don't have teams of geologists and they don't, they can't go and do, do full due diligence on everything and, and they shouldn't have to. But when, when you see that, validation come through and whether it's through that B, the BHP Explorer program is a phenomenal program. Um, and you would, you automatically assume, well, if it's, if someone's coming through that program or if this big company invests in a small company, there's this validation and what it allows you as an investor to do is just tick a box. The, the hard part with that is you can't, we can't expect just like a small group of big companies to just go out and validate everything. And to be honest, their business model is, is, they, they're the ones who benefit from this lack of funding in some ways in the, in the juniors because it drives their valuations down and then they get to go and buy them at a cheaper price. And that's what they get paid by their shareholders to do is go make kind of a creative acquisitions and, and drive value. So it's, it's I, like, I, I think it, what it ultimately comes down to is what is, where's the balance? Where's the balance within that? How does a junior go and drive the best value it can for its shareholders and ultimately, most of those explorers are likely realistically not going to build those mines, um, mm -hmm. in which case, not to say that some won't, but it, for most cases, means they need to find uh, a buyer at some point, assuming they can get to that stage. I do think that the juniors for them probably spend a little bit too much time talk, like worrying about the, who the buyer is when the reality is most projects, and it's just a high risk, high reward industry, aren't going to get bought. They should really focus on just ensuring that they have an incredible deposit and do everything they can to get to that point. And if they do that right, the right buyers will show up um, at the right time. Um, ultimately, I'm, I actually personally, I love the simplicity of just sort of the equity financed junior model. The problem is in markets like today, um, when valuations are low, it's, it's like a self-destructive spiral of equity dilution and you see companies that are $10 million that have to do $3 million financings with full warrants. And they've essentially done the equivalent of a 50, 50 joint venture just to pay for six to 12 months of their expiration and, and, and GNA. 
I don't know what the answer is to that. I, I think um, there's probably some some innovative government solutions that could come in and support those smaller companies because a half million dollars in funding towards a small company can change its life and put it in and put it in a position where um, it, it doesn't need to or it maybe won't see its valuation driven to zero. Whereas a half million dollars in funding to a $500 million company doesn't really do much for it. I think that's, I, I feel like all of this doesn't matter if the market's ripping because you can kind of, you get a good valuation, you get whatever money, whatever capital you need. But in times like this, this is where like flow through funding in Canada is such an incredible benefit. And I think keeps a lot of companies afloat, but there is, I personally think there's something to be said about, um, getting access to small amounts of money that keep these companies afloat. Because the nice thing is if a company, if a small company can remove the, the, uh, it's almost like the viability factor where somebody doesn't look at it and say, if this company doesn't raise a little bit of money, it's not going to be around anymore. Um, that, that in itself, the, the perception of that drives the valuation to zero, which makes it harder to equity finance and so on. If we can find a way to just remove that doubt where an investor can look at it and say, no matter what happens, I know this, my investment's still going to be here a year or two from now. I think that might be a really nice way to, um, yeah, support the sector. So I, I'll put this as a plug to all the governments out there thinking about what they can do to support the sector. Take the thousand com 500 companies that within your country, jurisdiction, whatever it is, and find some way to support, to, to support them. That. Yeah, to, to keep them off the, 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 the very, very bottom, hold them accountable to what they spend that money on. Um, and you're going to set them up to go raise 10, 10, 50 times that much money. Um, yeah. Well, here's a question for you, because I, I moderated a panel at Stanford a few weeks ago, and it got quite contentious between two of uh, my co-panelists. I won't name them. But like, I wonder if part of the issue is just uh, almost all of the juniors are public. Right. Like it's the only industry I can think of that has so many super early stage, essentially startups trying to raise money in the public markets. Right. Yeah. Like it's I mean, I don't even know when that started. Maybe maybe you know, one of you guys knows the history of how that came to be. So I had a, I had a fascinating conversation last night with a um, CEO of a billion dollar lithium company and they're dual listed. So Australia and um, uh, Australia and Canada. And it was actually, it was about sort of like the, the North American market and how it's kind of broken in its current state. Um, and whether or not I was thinking about it the whole time, is that because there's 2,500 listed companies that are all desperate for capital? I, Personally, so having gone through it, having come up in the public markets and in the last five years at Verify raising capital in private tech, I've, I've sort of got to see both sides of it. And, and the honest, I really miss the public markets because there's a, yeah, there's a sort of, you just, you always know where you stand, um, which yeah. unfortunately for sometimes is at three and a half cents, <laughs> which makes it very, which makes it very hard. But um, I think. I, I personally think that like it's a very unique thing that we have in sort of this really, really early stage public um, funding ecosystem. I think it gets used and abused endlessly, but I don't think that's, I think that's because there's other things that we can do to hold it accountable that we don't do. I don't think it's because of the fact that they're actually public. So I'm, I'm actually a big believer of these companies going public early, where I think what, what often happens is 
um, partially because the the private kind of the private funding for these companies just doesn't um, ecosystem just doesn't exist. So there's no real um, there's no real choice. But I, I think what I, what I like most about it is there is something to be said about investors need kind of the ability to come in and out uh, of something. And in the private world, you just, you don't have that. And um, anyway, we could get into a long discussion about different things these companies could, could or we could improve to make the, the public funding, public company uh, ecosystem more viable. But I actually, I'm, I'm having been on both sides of it, raising company or raising money privately for tech and, and public company, there is really something to be said about being as transparent as possible, having all of your news out to everyone. And when it comes time to raise capital, work with a group, whether it's an investment bank or someone else, pay them a fee, raise the capital and get on with your job versus the concept of 40% of your job needs to always be kind of like trying to find investors and, and, and so on. Yeah, because there is no like venture capital hamster wheel equivalent, right? Like in the mining space. I mean, well, there are very few funds well, that would operate there is, that way. There is, a, there is a unicorn out there that is on venture capital. That... Right. <laughs> They're yeah, not. Well, one, and it's got a lot of money behind it. And there's no, I, I, I think the other thing is that there's a lot that like, if you think of some of the programs, the accelerator programs, um, like the Y Combinators and, and things like that within the private space. And, and I think BH, BHP Explore is, a very very small version of what yeah. those might might be. Um, there's a lot of things that the the junior exploration industry and I very much view mineral exploration and mining as two different industries. Like you're mm -hmm. you're kind of very different objectives what you're trying to achieve. One's a treasure hunt and one's more of like a, an operating business. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's an opportunity for the public sector and the mineral exploration companies specifically to learn a ton from sort of some of these early adoption accelerator type programs within the uh, within the, the private tech space. Um, what one thing I'll say is having spent a lot of time with private tech investors, they're fascinated by this go public, like get an email address, a website, kind of plot, get a piece of grass, and then go public. <laughs> like it's just right. in, in the private, it's viewed as. X, like going public is viewed as like the liquidity event or the exit point for your private tech company you've built for 10 years. And, and the, on, in the mineral yeah. expiration side, it's literally no different than like getting your email like, address set up. Yeah. It's true. I know it's true. I mean, but just going kind of into that late vein and kind of talk about Emily, you know, a bit about the support of uh, the big mining companies can have and talking about sort of the cash troubles of the juniors is, you know, there is a lot of new technology out here. And if we really think about, well, what's the cost driver for the treasure hunt, right? It's it's drilling holes, right? At the end of the day, how can, uh, and maybe that's the best support that could be given, right? It is about increasing access and, and the quality of access and information and the ability to use that information to figure out where to drill that hole and to reduce that cost as much as we can for these juniors, because that to me, seems like a win-win, right? If 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 the the larger companies can contribute to that to some portion that they would put otherwise into these things, I mean that seems to me like it's always going to benefit them. But it also, if it's opened up for the juniors to access and available, if they can drill ten percent fewer holes to get the same resource or you know whatever the number is, that has a big effect on the bottom line, right? And if we're looking just at, make sure we the drill the 
right place, right? I mean, how many projects have you heard of where it was kind of left for as being no good and then someone came and put a drill hole, you know, a few hundred meters one way or the other and boom, right? Like that, that is absolutely where tech can help. Yeah, I yeah. can, I can, I can agree more on, on that stuff. And, and even at Verify, we're working on some stuff that, that right now that, that sort of goes to that and whether it's, you're making, like, if you think of, I'm spending $10 million on drilling this year, like you make it 1% more efficient and you save someone a hundred thousand dollars, but, and whether or not you're trying to save the money and drill less to get the same results or for the same amount of money you can yeah. drill. You, you, you can increase your hit rate. It's, and, and I think it's as much about, um, it's as much about knowing where not to drill as it is where, where, where to drill. And, mm-hmm. but the, the flip side of that, I think is also in how you're communicating that. Cause ultimately to raise the capital, to drill those holes, you need to get investors excited and it comes in that treasure hunt. So how do you, how do you do that? And even when we work like at Verify, we work with a lot of clients and oftentimes we find we've taken geology, geophysics, all these different technical things, and then we put them into 3D, but they're still being presented to people who don't know what geophysics or geochem or any of these things are. And just because something's in 3D or it's interactive doesn't actually necessarily make it better. Sometimes it can actually be much more confusing because at least before it was on on a PowerPoint slide. And (laughs) I think that's the other side of it is, is kind of breaking down and again, I call it the treasure hunt because I think expiration is very much like, and I mean that in a good way, not in, in it's, it's like this romantic, let's drill this hole and like watch it come out and see if we found, discovered something. I think if we on the expiration side can do a better job in sort of almost embracing that narrative and moving maybe a little bit away from all the technical background and keep it there for the, the groups that need it, but much more like this target, we use geology, geophysics, rocks, whatever historic drilling everything but this juicy pulsing orb of a target we're going to drill um if we can get something like that yeah exactly i think that's i think it's yeah anyway i think it's something that everybody could invest in and especially if we start having wins because like you alluded to it earlier the private billion dollar unicorn that's been able to go and raise silicon valley money for hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars based on essentially using ai and machine learning to target there is capital out there for companies that embrace technology and i think it's both about embracing technology to make your expiration programs more efficient and at the same time visualizing it in a way that the investor can ultimately say i want to invest in this i also think to tag on to that i heard for the first time um a company talk about how they want to use predictive analytics to come up with their next drill drill program not just to improve the effectiveness of what they're doing, but so they can submit it as part of their um, permit package to prove to the regulator that they are doing everything they can to minimize any environmental impact, like that they are making sure that they are doing as much as they can using technology to avoid just... That's interesting. Yeah. And a project that actually is located in Spain. Um, which I thought was really interesting. I had, that is the first time I've ever heard of it maybe being like an environmental risk mitigation tool that you can share with regulators. Yeah, it, that's it. I've never thought of that before, but that's a really good point. That, that like the drill pad itself is, mm-hmm. is there is there is there can be depending on where you are some a footprint from that and and yeah, having like water usage. I mean everything. Just making sure yeah. you're it only in the places that you really need to to drill that again it just helps the regulator know you've 
you know, kind of done everything you can to, to mitigate any risk. Because we're coming up on the end of time here, we're going to make some space for questions. We already do have, sorry, a couple here from our weekly nugget. Um, one of the questions we got was ideas about why people might be slow to invest in mining. And I know we've kind of already gone over this a little bit. Um, so feel free to answer that briefly while I find Peggy's question here. Yeah, I think it goes partly to Peggy made a comment too about the use of plain language. I think people very quickly get overwhelmed by the jargon, like the technical, yeah, the technical language. Do I understand enough about geology and mining engineering to evaluate this project or company? I think that's a huge barrier. Um, I think it's also why people find gold easier to start with, right? Because kind of the way that People at least have seen the show Gold Rush or, you know, you know, Gold Rush movies and stuff. And they kind of have an idea of what gold looks like as a mineral. Whereas when we kind of try to explain a lot of other stuff, I don't think we use that clear language with the treasure hunting analogy and stuff enough. I think we get too technical too fast. Yeah, I think there is also a trend from automakers to try to vertical integrate it with the mining companies that supplies the material for the EV, for the EV cars, for the batteries. So in those cases, there are people that is not very directly related to the mining industry. So in order to communicate with them, we need to be transparent, clear, and be able to make them understand all the, the whole process that involves the mining industry. For us, talking with someone for a, for a junior or for a bigger mining company, they speak our same language which is not always clear with if we are talking to different industries that are now connecting. Another trend is that, for example, the energy, clean energy industry try to connect with the mining industry since um, since uh, we are in this transition of, of clean energy. There are some companies that are trying to consolidate with the, with mining companies in the same area. So that would, that would mean that there are, there are some similarities, but it still is a completely different different industry. So we need to make sure that we communicate with all of, all of, all of these potential clients or companies that we can integrate in a very clear and concise uh, language. I would awesome. add one other thing too. I think um, the geopolitical stuff that's going on right now, I, I would imagine is making folks nervous um, to invest in companies that, mo which most mining companies do, have operations outside of the country the investor lives in. And I know as a team, we were just on Slack earlier because uh, South 32 came out and said they declared force majeure on one of their projects in Colombia, right? And we had just come out with the Colombia report, shout out, it's up on the website um, that, that we did um, with our colleagues, uh, with, with Jason and the team at Global Scout. But like, you know, when this stuff starts to happen, they start to hear nationalization or force majeure or protests in countries where there are projects located. I think that's another valid reason why people are hesitant, right? They really want me are like, okay, I got to really understand it's not the same as investing in, you know, a, a project here in the US and it's not, right? It's also like mining, an exploration company is, is a capital depleting company. Right. So like being for a lot of people, right? Like if you're investing in Apple, they produce phones. I see them sell phones. There's profit, you know, um, for, for you know, an early stage company, great. Right? When you're or an explorer, not I shouldn't say early stage, an explorer, 
um, you know, that mine, you know, if it goes into production, it could be 10, 15, 20 years, right? Um, and so you're talking a long period of time. The way to make money is to know the technical jargon and to know what's going on and when to buy, when to sell in and out of that company. And so I think it's it's rather intimidating, particularly for earlier. So maybe at the developer stage, right? Uh, when I think about telling my family and friends, I'm like, um, I don't know that I trust you enough to pick the right explorer, but I do trust you to pick the right developer, right? Like I could say, oh, look at a company like Alchem, who's got a lot of lithium assets. Look at like some of these other companies right there. You're not recommending individual investments. Sorry, I'm not recommending individual investments. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm writing these down. Yeah. (laughs) um, I guess the point is being is it's a little easier in that developer stage. And even like if you are not like you can't really invest in most exploration companies because one, most people like a lot of retail investors are investing through platforms like Robinhood and Mm -hmm. TSX and ASX both don't have paper flow. So they're not on those retail trading apps. They, you have to be, you know, through, you know, uh, like an E-Trade account or something of the like. And I think that also affects things as well. But I think it's, it's just, it's, it's riskier in that earlier stage. It's a longer time and it's capital depleting. So you got to wrap your head around, Hey, I'm going to invest in something that's going to burn my money. And I'm going to hope to God that it's going to be more valuable tomorrow than it is now. So I can get my money back. Right. That's, that's what you're telling someone. And that's, that's, it's hard when you, if you think about it from, from that standpoint sometimes. And I, I think it's still. Um, what, what's going to bring capital back in? I, I think a lot of it does just come back to when people see other people making capital in it, um, making money in it, they're going to say, well, now I'll take another look at it. And mm-hmm. for some, they're going to go deeper and say like, well, I want to make sure it's sort of, I check the ESG profile or the management team. And so on. others are just going to look at the share price and say, this chart kind of seems like it's going in the right direction. I'm going to invest in it. But ultimately until that starts to happen, it's really hard to like nobody wants to catch a falling knife or whatever the saying is. Like it's really hard to um, see an industry that's kind of on a three or four year downturn and say now is the time to, to kind of come back into it. But when that trend reverses, it'll it'll yeah it happens quickly. Um, I just wanted to comment on on Peggy's uh, comment. The use of plain language is key to communicating with your audience. We should never take for granted that investors understand us. I think it's um. I, I put a LinkedIn post about this earlier this week and there's I saw a ton of engagement and I really enjoyed the discussion around it. And I've, I've sort of always believed that I think my thinking around that has changed and that seeing some of these AI tools come out now and that the, the post and the comments I made was I think disclosure and, and press releases and everything, we actually don't need to try and turn it into a format that everyone understands anymore. I think we actually just need to be consistent and very clear on, on how the data is represented. And the reason I believe that now and why that's changed is because you're now at a point where anybody can say, hey, I want this press release. Here's my level of understanding. Technically, here's the person I want to read it to me. And AI can generate all of these things. So every press release, as long as the data is consistent and the key points are outlined, we can now, for the PhD geologist versus the the generalist who's um, investing with their Quest Trade account, they can translate that information into whatever format they need to digest it. And it kind of takes the pressure off the company to come up with the, almost this lowest common denominator approach to its disclosure, where it's trying to take really technical information and turn it into a format that everybody can understand without diluting the value of the technical content within it. So I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see over the next year or two the, the transformation of press releases 
because I do think you're going to see investment websites where a press release goes out and there's going to be six different options you can click on to level of technical detail. And there's all kinds of disclosure issues um, with that. The difference is as long as the company is very clear and it and follows 43101 of JORC or the technical guidelines, it's not their responsibility for what filter someone wants to apply to it to, to digest that information. I think it's pretty exciting as well because it, it just opens it up because a lot of our content and press releases are written in a way that people just can't understand. And it takes the, the onus off us as the people within the industry to, to um, be responsible for that, that translation. So I totally agree with Peggy's point. I just think the means to which we're going to get there is actually different than what I, what I would have thought a year or two ago. And I would yeah, say we've fun. played around with that a lot at Prospector, right? And like, if any of you saw our poll, Matthew McConaughey, it looks like will be the voice of our chat bot by, by election, by the LinkedIn community. But I think the challenge we've seen with it, I absolutely agree, Steve, it's headed that way. But if the AI isn't taught to understand mining and geology, the results you get back are so wonky, like drill results in particular. Like we, I mean, I, I think it's it's going to be really cool. And, and we, we kind of consider ourselves as being involved in this race to be able to solve that problem, right? So we're really excited by the fact that it's still an issue. But some of those bots, man, they did not take Geology 101, right? Oh, like, I know. And that's, and that's, um, <laughs> It's it's but in some ways I think it's very similar to six months ago. Everyone said AI can't generate pictures because yeah. everyone has six six fingers, and try and find a six finger picture now. And it's with with AI. I totally agree with you. It's just the, the speed at the speed at which this stuff is is accelerating. Um, I, it reminds me of an awesome meme I saw. It was a, a ring you could put on with a fake finger, and it said, "Kind of just put this on, and then anything you do, you can just say it was AI." <laughs> Well, I don't know if anybody saw, but um, one of the princes from the royal, the British royal family is missing a finger in the Christmas photo. And they're debating whether it was Photoshop or the whole picture was AI. <laughs> John, I'd love to hear your insights on this, because I know this is something you're well, really excited about. Yeah. So I think, that, yeah, when we when we think about these language models, I I don't know that the big companies are going to focus on fine-tuning these models anytime soon that they can do geology-specific tasks. But I do think there's ways in which we can use those tools um, internally to, to, to do the summaries more applicable. And it's actually something we're very focused on. Um, and so, for instance, one, one thing we do is, at the moment, is when a tech report comes out, we actually um, have some scripts that basically take specific parts of the document that we know we're going to care about, things like the parts that talks about capital expenditures, the top, top parts about OPEX, the resource reserves. And if you give it very specific prompts and you you tweak the models a little bit, you can actually get it to give you pretty good results. And actually, so we do a process of extracting life of mine plans and resource reserves out of these documents. And we, by you running these scripts, we can actually automate 80% of that process. We just have a human review at the end. And it's pretty impressive. It's not something we could have done a year ago. Um, and so, right, like basically all the inputs you need to do a cash flow analysis, right? You the way that we've been setting this up is you can prompt and get this stuff out. Um, we're excited about that. We're trying to get it ready for maybe the general public to use sometime early next year, but it's something we use our own data collection. That's made us a lot faster and more efficient. And it's, it's really impressive when you start and, using rich models like this. And I think the important part there is that your, your comment, you still have a human review it and it's, yeah. and the same for if a company uses it, I know companies use it now to generate press releases and it's not like there's all kinds of errors in it. 
But what it does is it, it removes the first week of back and forth with your team. And all of a sudden you're editing something that's pretty close to final and you still have to go through the same QA, QC, everything else. But it's it's removed. It's not replacing, but it's made everybody so much more efficient. And I think what's going to happen over time is you'll just see that human review process. And there's a, there's a trust element to it as well. Just continue to to um, to shrink. I, I find one of the really interesting things is now it's so easy to train. Like if say it's a, a company or an individual, you train it on content that you've specifically created before, and then it generates it in your tone. It's terrifying, but yeah. it's 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 now uh, yeah it's now doing a better job of writing content that you would <laughs> write than you can yourself in your own voice, which is yeah. Anyway, that's another four-hour discussion we could get into. Yeah. <laughs> like the content version of back when we had answering machines, and you had to like listen to yourself on the like list. It's like listening to myself recording. I'm like, is that really what I write like when somebody else yeah. writes it, sounding like me? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. oh my god! Did you just admit to not editing editing your writing? <laughs> well, you've read my writing, Dan. You know, yeah, my my, my early education in a five paragraph essay, yeah. I, no, but I, I use I, it for proposals and email, like things that same thing. It's like, okay, I don't want to have to think through the, the form of all this, right? I just yeah. want to go and fine tune the details. It's incredibly powerful for that. For sure. So um, we are out of time. So just a heads up, everybody. Thank you all who stuck around for this extra few minutes uh, on the AI discussion. Definitely we'll have to talk more about that in the future. Um, but yeah, if there's any other questions or anything, don't hesitate to reach out to the prospector or verify teams over here. There we go. Um, and we're all on LinkedIn and everything. So feel free to connect with us again. Thank you all for joining and we will see you in 2024. How crazy is that? Um, we look forward to our beginning of the year roundup next year. So thank you all. And then thank you, Steve, so much for being our special guest today. Really enjoyed the conversation. So, yeah. Thanks so much right. for having me. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everybody. Thanks.